wait for the... All right, well, thanks for joining us online, and thanks for joining us here in person. We are uh, continuing on with our Truth for Living session and sessions, and we're going to be looking at uh, our qu question number five today. Um, oh, I don't know why it did that. My computer is... There we go. Sorry about that. You didn't even see it. It just happened on my screen. Um, we're looking at uh, question five, which we'll get to in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly review uh, the questions that we've already covered. So question one... What is our good God like? Now, again, this is in a section um, that the kids are learning in the back, a section in our catechism of the goodness of God. And so we're assuming the fact that God is good, and that's evident in his word. What is our good God like? Well, he's holy, he's loving, he's perfect in all he is and all he does. He is true, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. It is because of God that we even know what good is. And of course, Psalm 34, 8 was the verse that came along with that. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I, one of those things that I think we miss about this verse, it tells us that God is good. It describes that reality for us, and we recognize it as a truth of Scripture. But it's not just a command for us to know that God is good. What does he say? taste and see. It's that work to, to experience the goodness of God, to recognize that we can have an a, a, a encounter with this good God and that we can find blessedness when we look to him for refuge. Our second question is, well, who gives us all good things? And this is an easy answer. God gives us all good things. Uh, and we saw in Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The sun is that which provides uh, light. The sun is that which provides uh, sustenance to the plants. And so we see that God is a provider. He gives all good things to us and that he is a shield. He is, that who, he, is he who protects us. Uh, he is the one who never lets anything happen to us outside of his will. Uh, he bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I think this is, is such, a, such an important thing for us to recognize. God always deals with his people in goodness. Always. Now, we have to recognize that goodness there is defined by the standard of goodness, which is God. And so where we tend to get off here is that we think goodness is going to be defined by what we think would be good. But just as a, um, just as a little child would think that it is good to eat candy all day long, and that's the goodness that they want. A good parent is not going to allow a child to eat candy all day long because they recognize that what they see as good is not what is actually good for, from the, for them. Question three, how good is God? And we, here we bring in the idea of the holiness of God. God is holy. He's perfectly good, perfectly pure, and perfectly committed to his glory. And we spend some time discussing uh, the idea of God's commitment to his glory as the ends to the ultimate good for his people. Um, knowing the glory of God is knowing that which is best. And so if God is going to pursue, uh, if he's going to voraciously pursue that which is good for his people, and his glory is ultimately that which is good for his people, then that his commitment to that glory is perfect, and we can find hope in that. And of course, we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3b, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And now we're coming into, we've seen the goodness of God displayed in, in, in his holiness. We've seen it displayed in the idea that he gives good to his people. And so the last, last two weeks ago, we, talked, we began looking at, we saw the positive aspects of his goodness. Now we're looking at from the perspective of the things that God does not do, the negative aspects of his goodness. And of course, does God ever sin? And this one we could again answer with a short one-word answer. No, God never sins. Uh, but the answer is a little bit more nuanced. God's character and actions are always righteous. And we talked about righteousness. We talked about how it's conformity to a standard and how God himself is that standard. And that it is impossible for God to treat someone in a sinful way. God never does sinful things. And of course, we saw this in Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in how many of his ways? All of his ways and kind in all his works. Which brings us then, if this is what God has said, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Um, we can experience a bit of an existential uh, conflict at times with that, tr- with that truth. Because when we face circumstances that don't seem kind to us, it can bring us to a point where we begin to doubt. And, and really, we begin to doubt the truthfulness of God himself and the truthfulness of his word. You know, it's, it's, never, it's never easy in the midst of trial to see that this is kind. I can imagine that Job himself, as he faced the loss of his family, as he faced the loss of, of all his possessions, as he faced the loss of his health, and even as we read that in that narrative, Of course, recognizing that the devil is the one who's brought this about, but he's done it because God has allowed it, there can seem to be some some dissonance in our minds. Well, how can God be kind when Job is facing all these things? And that brings us to our question for today. Question five, does God ever lie? What do we think? Does God ever lie? No, and we can... We can make that and say that very clearly. God never lies. Now, what, what are the implications of the fact that God never lies? Well, then that makes him absolutely trustworthy, and it makes his word absolute truth. So the fact that God never lies means that we can trust him, and it means that what he says will be true. And we're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the world began. And we're going to come back to this and look at sort of the implications of this. But I wanted us to sort of walk through some passages of Scripture today that describe for us uh, uh, the, the hope that we find uh, in the fact that God never lies. And then, uh, and then look at some practical applications on a day-to-day basis of what this hope means for us. So God never lies. Um, who does lie often? Point to people who lie often, all right? Ourselves, all right? And one of the things we see about the fact that God never lies is it demonstrates his difference from humanity. Now, th- this again is, is an opportunity for us to recognize that God is different than us. Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is what? Deceitful. And it's not just deceitful, it's deceitful above all things. The idea there is that the deceit that is found in mankind is of the 
is of the greatest potential, that man has the potential to lie about almost everything, that, that actually our propensity, apart from God's grace, is deceit. Um, it, it's amazing how easily lying comes to children at a very young age. You know, they recognize that they don't want their parents to know they've done something, even a little toddler. And so what will they do? They'll lie to their parents. Uh, you, I'm sure you've probably seen the, the videos of, of the kid who has cookie crumbs all over his mouth. And the mother comes and says, did you get in the cookie jar? No. And yet there's chocolate smeared all over his mouth. He's lying. Who, who taught the kid how to lie? He just knew. It came as a, as a result of his nature. And so the heart of mankind is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Psalm 50, 19 through 21, we, we see how this psalm is written uh, earlier in this passage as a rebuke of God's testimony um, against Israel. Or it's a rebuke as God testifies against Israel. He speaks of how he's rejected their sacrifices uh, he calls on them to have heartfelt worship exhibited through upright living. So he's expressing what it means to be one of his people. And then he rebukes the wicked. And the idea earlier on in this passage is what do the wicked do? They indulge themselves in unrestrained sin. They walk in deceitful talk. They slander against their own family. Look at what the passage says. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Notice the, the idea there that, that God says there. It's not that just that the tongue speaks deceitfully, but that it actually is that which creates the boundaries of deceit. In other words, it, it takes the entirety of what deceit would be and puts it out there. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. Now, here's where the, the, the wicked have taken the long-suffering of God, the fact that he hasn't judged his people, and they've made a conclusion about it. Just as mankind speaks deceitfully, maybe God has spoken deceitfully. Maybe God has lied when he said he's going to bring about um, destruction and he's going to bring about judgment upon those who act wickedly. And so God comes and rebukes them. And he says, listen, this is your problem. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The implication here is that we, and this is a reality that we all struggle with. We don't want a God who is not like us. We want a God like us so that we can control and manipulate and have some level of autonomy ourselves. You thought that I was one like yourselves, but the reality is God is not like us. And the minute we forget that reality, the minute we come to a point where that's not the way in which we come to view him, the minute our imaginations conceive of him in a way that is different than how he has revealed himself, then we begin to allow ourselves to think it's not sin's not that big a deal. God's not going to judge. 
If Psalm 1 and 2 are, are considered the, the great pillars of the archway into which you enter the Psalms, and Psalm 1 calls upon God's people to not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but to, to delight in the law of the Lord. And then Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of mankind. They're going to cast off God's bonds. And God is sitting in heaven, and what is he doing as he hears mankind saying, we're going to break free of God's reign? God's what? What's he doing up there? The Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. He'll have them in derision. And then he goes on to describe how he's going to break them like a potter's vessel into pieces. He's going to smash them that way. And, and the conclusion is, if you don't want to have the wrath of God, which will surely come, kiss the son. Pay homage to, that, to his son and find hope in him. Psalm 50, these... Um, these wicked men that are described here say God's lying about that. And so the error we make is in thinking that God is like us. But Psalm 50 is a reminder that God never lies. And if we forget this truth, when he turns to tear us apart, which he actually describes earlier in Psalm 50, there will be no deliverance. He will keep his word to punish sin. Now, when we think about the faithfulness of God to his word, we often think of it in the positive sense. God will keep all the promises he's made. And that's a wonderful thing. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But let us never forget that there's another side to that truth. God judges sin. Now, that judgment doesn't come immediately. Our God is a God who is long-suffering. Our God is a God who also allows certain things to proceed because he has purposes behind it. But nonetheless, just because God delays his judgment, has he promised to judge sin? Has God promised to judge sin? Yes. And so if he never lies, then what must he do? Punish sin. And in this way, he is extremely different than us. There's also a hopeful thing in this reality that God is different from humanity because I'm sure every single one of you here has been lied to by someone. Every single one of you here has had someone who said one thing and did another. When God makes a promise to his people, he never lies. And so he will never fail to do that which he's promised for his people. The goodness that he says, that he's, when he says he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly, he can't lie about that. And so those promises are true. And that gives us great hope and great encouragement that of all the failures that we find among men, of all the failures that we find in people who lie to us, God will never lie to us. And then this way he's different from humanity. But secondly, and particularly in the Old Testament, there's another thing that we find about God and, and what the fact that he never lies demonstrates. And it demonstrates his difference from other gods. Now, now we're going to look at this in, in Old Testament context primarily. And other gods in the Old Testament context were primarily seen as, as what? Idols, right? Things made uh, of gold and silver, of wood, cast together, carved together that people would 
bow down to. Now, we live in the 21st century. You know, we've moved beyond this idea of, of bowing down to idols, right? So we don't have to worry about idols in our own lives, right? Absolutely not. And so the principles that we're going to see that tied back to the fact that God never lies should be an encouragement for us to cast off idolatry. Because idols, you know what they do? It's not that they never lie. It's that all they do is lie. Idols only lie. Psalm 115. This is a description of how idols are made. And, and their very existence, the idol's very existence, is itself an act of deceit. Notice what the psalmist says here. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of whose hands? Human hands. Now, now this should give us a key and a clue into the fact that idols are going to be only deceitful. Because the heart of men is what? Deceitful. So when men get together and eschew or turn away from following God, what they produce is going to reflect that deceitfulness. And so the gods they make are deceitful. Notice what he says, they have mouths. So, so he's speaking here of how, how this idol would, would have a mouth maybe, maybe molded by in metal of gold or silver, or maybe carved into wood. But does the idol actually have the ability to speak? So its mouth is a farce. Its mouth is a lie. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. All of these things here are meant to contrast the ways in which God is completely different than idols. God does have a mouth, and he does speak. God has eyes that see not just what's immediately in front of him, but God's eyes see everything. God has ears. He hears the cries of his people. God has a nose. You're like, why is the nose in here? God oftentimes will speak of the prayers and the worship of his people as a sweet-smelling aroma in his nostrils. He rejoices in the offerings of his people. An idol can't do that. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. God's hands, his arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His feet is that he can walk all over the earth. And he speaks of how they do not make a sound in their throat. Yet God is the one when, when his voice speaks, it is louder than the ragings of the sea. And so the falseness of other gods is actually reflection further of the deceitfulness of humanity. We use our hands to make a farce of a God. We look to this farce of a God and we deceive ourselves into thinking it will save us. When it has no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no hands to do, and that it can't even, it doesn't even give any kind of, um, any kind of recognition that we even worship it. All it does is take, it never gives back. And so to hope in an idol is to hope in a lie. If he, and then this is the point that happens, that, that he brings to, to a close here. Those who trust in these idols, what do they do? They become like them. 
so do all. I'm sorry, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. If you trust in them, you will become like them. You'll have nothing to say. You'll not be able to sense spiritual things, seeing, seeing, hearing, smelling. And you'll be unable to accomplish anything through trusting in them. Idols always disappoint. And, and the funny thing is, in our lives, every time we depend on an idol, it always fails us. And yet we still have the temptation, the desire to go back to that idol. Now, in today's day and age, we don't have little statues up on shelves, at least not in most American society. There are some places that still do that. But we have idols of our hearts looking to comfort, looking to having things our way, looking to financial security. We have idols that are, that are found in the acclaim and the praise of other people, acceptance before other people. We look to idols of acceptance in relationships, and, and, and we can make an idol of almost anything in this world, and we can worship it, we can bow down to it. We can pour our energies into it. It can become the number one most important thing in our lives. And we will always be without satisfaction because they are a lie. They never satisfy. Only God can satisfy. Jeremiah speaks of this very practically in Jeremiah fourteen twenty two. In this passage, God is reminding Israel to not hope in other gods, particularly the gods of the nations around them. They come from the imagination of men. They only lie. They only disappoint what we just saw. And so what God has promised is he said, Israel continues to go after these idols, so I'm going to discipline them. And I'm going to discipline them with a famine. There's, not going, to be, there's going to be a drought and a famine. There will not be rain on the ground. The crops will die. People will be hungry. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be so expansive that even the most rich in Israel, the nobles, will send their servants out to find water and they're not going to be able to find it. They'll not be able to buy it despite the riches that they have. And so what, in a situation like that, when God is disciplining Israel, what should be the response of Israel? Turn back to God. But unfortunately, over and over again, we see throughout the history of the Old Testament, and as Jeremiah would preach to these people and they would constantly reject him, rather than turning to God, who do they turn to? Their idols. The ones that don't have hands, that don't have feet, the ones that can't even hear their prayers to them. And so Jeremiah reminds Israel in Jeremiah 14, 22, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or, the heaven, or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. It's important, I think, to note the way in which Jeremiah describes these idols. He calls them what type of gods? False gods. False gods can't bring relief. They can't bring hope. And so it is for us to turn from dependence on false gods and to find and set our hope 
on God himself because he is the one who can actually do something about our situations. So the fact that God never lies demonstrates his difference from humanity. It demonstrates his difference from other gods, which are really a reflection of the deceitfulness of humanity. But then we also see that it demonstrates the sure hope his people have. That those who trust in the Lord and particularly trust in his promises can be confident that those, those promises will come true. In 2 Samuel 22, David has just finished a, a period of intense warfare with the Philistines. And in fact, in, verse, in chapter 21, there's a, a discussion of all these uh, giants that were left in the Philistines as they, were, as they were plaguing David. Some of them were related to Goliath. Described how, how they, were, they were skilled in battle, how they were formidable foes. These giants of, Philistine, of the Philistines. And yet, over and over again, we see that David is able to find victory over them. Whether he himself brought that victory or whether his uh, servants and those who were fighting with him brought that victory. And then David, at the end of this, where, where there's, there's this time where the Philistines are no longer plaguing God's people, he writes a psalm. And the psalm is actually recorded both in 2 Samuel and in the Psalms. And David comes to this point and, and he speaks of how his hope is found in the truth that God keeps his word. Notice what he says. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God. And my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. David is attributing all the victories that he's had, seemingly insurmountable victories, to what God has done. And then he says, this God, the God who brings about these things, his way is what? Perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I love how David here is giving an expression of what he has experienced. The word of the Lord proves what? True. God keeps his promises. He proves himself to be true. Now, I'm sure there were times in, in David's life, in fact, we know this, where he may be despaired of that fact, perhaps while he was in battle. There's actually, in, in 2 Samuel 21, there's a scene that's described in one of these battles where, where one of these giants has his spear, uh, a heavy spear, and, and he looks, and depending on how you translate the Hebrew, he either looks with the intent to kill David or he th thinks he has killed David. But regardless, the idea is that David is in some way, sense, some way or in some sense compromised and his life is in danger. And you can imagine David in that moment seeing this formidable foe taking his spear about to thrust David through. And in that moment, I'm sure it would have been easy for David to doubt the promise of God. God had made 
covenant promises to David. He had promised that one of his, um, someone from his body would sit on the throne, that there would be an eternal legacy. And yet here he looks and this all could be falling apart on this battlefield as this giant takes the spear. And then it speaks of how one of David's servants, one of David's men, comes up and kills this man before he can kill David. And you can imagine David in that moment where he, in one second or two seconds, could have been facing certain death, looks and sees his enemy slain, and he gives thanks to God because the word of the Lord proves what? True. David is able to give testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. Which brings us back to our passage for this week. In fact, actually, I, I, I want, and this is actually Titus 1, 1 through 3. I think it was important for us to look at the whole context here of why Paul says to Titus, God never lies. Why does he make that statement? Well, this is a typical letter of Paul. He introduces himself, Paul. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says he's doing this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And then he brings out this idea, this message that Paul is bringing to God's elect accords with godliness that brings about a hope of eternal life. And why is there this hope of eternal life? Because God, who never lies, made promises. Now, when did God make those promises? Before the ages began. And then he brought those promises to come true at the proper time, manifesting his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul speaks here of immense hope in the message of the promises of God. He settles that promise all the way back before humanity existed, when all that existed was just God. And there's there's an amazing thought here. God, among himself, in, in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, makes a promise that a people who haven't even begun to exist, Adam has not been created, they, they don't exist, yet God is saying, I will save them. I will save my elect. I will bring them to a knowledge of the truth. This will change their lives so they walk in godliness. It will bring them an eternal life, a hope of eternal life. And this, these promises are made before the foundations of the world were laid, before the first second hand began to tick on, in time, if there is a second hand on this ethereal time. God made those promises, and he will not fail to keep them. Now, God made those promises without, these, without Adam even existing. And yet it came about that he completed those promises at the proper time. And in particular, that manifestation of the word at the proper time speaks of how he saves his people and is continuing to save his people at the proper time. I think about uh, 
the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's a guy who had power. He was um, obviously someone that was in a royal court in, in Ethiopia. He grew up likely a heathen, was probably made a eunuch against his will, although it's possible he willingly went into that uh, for, the, for the power that it would possibly give him. And he comes across the word of God. He comes across the scriptures. He comes across the prophecy of Isaiah as he's traveling through the promised land. And he doesn't know what it means. He doesn't know what, what he's supposed to make of it. And yet God had promised before the foundations of the world that he would save that Ethiopian eunuch. How does God choose to, to bring that about? He doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to let you sort of go along your way and I'll just save you because I've set my grace upon you. You know what he does? He takes my favorite evangelist in the Bible, Philip, and he makes him just appear there. He comes, or he, I'm sorry, he comes across him and, and, and he, he shares the gospel with him. God ensures that this eunuch who otherwise would never know the message of the gospel, comes into contact with the gospel by Philip. He shares the gospel. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ. As Philip explains to him that Isaiah is speaking of Christ. He baptizes them, and then as soon as Philip came, guess what happened? He's gone again. That's a demonstration of God keeping his promises to save his people. God never lies. That message resonates through this passage because if God never lies, then what does that mean about our eternal life? Our hope is sure. When he speaks of us having hope of eternal life, that hope is bound to the fact that God never lies. So, how do we apply these truths? Well, in his first epistle, John writes of how we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Exactly what Paul was talking about to Titus. So that we, and this understanding brings us to the point so that we may know him who is what? True. And then that we by faith, are united. We're in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and He is eternal life. The implications of what, what John is saying here is be, by virtue of our union with Christ, which we talked about Sunday as we, as we discussed the meaning of baptism, by virtue of that union with Christ, then our eternal life is bound up in God Himself so when will our eternal life cease? When God ceases. And will God ever cease? So that's the hope of eternal life. How would a sure foundation? So then what does that mean? How should that impact us on an everyday basis? And this is the last words of John's letter. And what does he say? Little children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. He reminds us that we, in Christ, know the true God. 
But yet he also recognizes that we still have a sinful old man. We're still prone to being deceived by the idols of this world. And so in reminding us that we have the true God, he tells us to reject false gods. And again, those aren't the gods that we see on, on, in statues, on mantles, but these are the gods of our own hearts. So if we know the true God, why would we go back to a God who by its entire existence is nothing but a lie? That's what John challenges us with. And then we also see, secondly, as we're challenged to reject idols, we see that we must continue in hope in this God who never lies. The book of Revelation is a mysterious book. It's a book that has symbolism and, and much that's difficult to understand. But there are some things that are abundantly clear in the book. And the main thing that's abundantly clear in the book is that as the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of darkness wars against the kingdom of Christ, Jesus wins. As we come to the end of this book, we see this testimony. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the response is that, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's interesting the way in which that this is, this is uh, described. Jesus is making a bold proclamation. He's saying it is of a certainty that I am coming soon. And based on the fact that God never lies, then what does that mean? Jesus is coming soon. And the response of John upon hearing that is, Amen. It's true. And then he cries out with a heart of faith, Come, Lord Jesus. When we say that at the end of communion, Every month here, it's not just a, a formula that's recited. It should be an expression of our hearts, knowing that we believe that God never lies. And if Jesus is coming back, then he could come back right now. Come, Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself in his words to the church at Laodicea writes, these are the words of the amen, the truthful one. The one who is a faithful and true witness, the one who is the beginning of everything that exists. And so as, as the book of Revelation winds down, this angel that's been telling and showing John all these things said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the, the, God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. What's amazing about the book of Revelation is we see God's promises fulfilled to their full, both to judge sin and to save his people. Both are equally certain. And so Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, of what message he brought to the Corinthians there. And there's just something that is so hopeful for us. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not 
Yes and no. But in Christ, it's always what? Yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So what should be our response? That is why through him we utter our what? Amen. Let it be so. It's true. To God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, does God ever lie? God never lies. He is absolutely trustworthy and his word is absolute truth. As Titus, or as Paul reminds Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the world began. Praise the Lord, our God is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a true God who never lies. Lord, may this drive us to put away idols. May you work and by your grace create within us greater faith so that we, in the midst of those times where it doesn't seem like you're true to your promises, that we would continue to trust in you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, may we find immense hope in your promises. Father, may we find glorious confidence that we are established because you never lie. Father, work in our hearts by your spirit tonight. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us in person. Have a great week.